This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast, and today I'm joined by, as always, my fabulous co-host, the hostess with the mostess, <laughs> and he's in a terrible, terrible state, but we're going to talk about that later. How are you doing, Jan? Uh, feeling a bit fragmented. Let's, you know, tie together with little bits of string and things like that. So <laughs> I've been better, I guess. Uh, then there's a hostess that's new. Not sure how deep we're going to do exploring that, that one today. Let's not go there. But I'm good the way I am. How are you doing? I'm doing very well indeed. And uh, the reason I'm doing very well is, of course, it's a news episode. And we love these news episodes. Uh, we've got a bit of a, a, a theme, a topic. We may have even hinted towards it at the uh, at the intro there. But... We're going to be talking about the state of microservices in 2020. And uh, our, our guide through this is uh, a report created by an organization called The Software House. Uh, so thank you for uh, all the hard work that went into this as a creation of interesting individuals who uh, put all this information together. And... Uh, Unless you have anything that uh, you want to say before we dive into it, I say we get to it. Yeah, just uh, maybe mention that we found this article and we do a normal trolling for good content. And we kind of liked this and thought we could uh, pretty much spend an entire episode on it. I mean, it's not like we're yeah. struggling to fill time. Uh, that sounded better in my head. <laughs> <laughs> so, nope. Let's uh, let's get into it. Uh, you found this one. Just going to tell everybody this. We're going to be looking at the uh, web page version of it. There is a PDF you can download, which is uh, different layout, but kind of same content. Let's say it doesn't uh, yeah. really go into more depth, as far as I could tell. Indeed, indeed. So, I mean, obviously, you can't have a state of something without working out who it is you're actually going to talk to. And in this case, uh, it's. A mixture of uh, developers, CTOs, you know, lead developers, senior developers. Um, I'm guessing there's probably a scattering of architects in there as well. Um, but what really surprised me on this, and maybe um, I didn't actually look to see the location of the uh, of the people behind this, but what really surprised me was the breadth of people. Um, responding to this, who are based in Europe, um, you can see on the map here. You know, number of respondents from North America, ninety-six. Number from Western Europe, two hundred and fifty-two. Number from Eastern Europe, one hundred and sixty-three. So, I I don't know, and obviously there's plenty of respondents from other places around the world, but I don't know how much this. Um, sort of is likely to skew the results in one way or another. I, I honestly, I don't know. I have no no idea on the impact of that. But I did think it was curious because a lot of times with these, we tend to see, you know, very heavy kind of responses uh, from North America and good responses from everywhere else. But, you know, this, this seemed to be, to me, somewhat overly weighted towards uh, Western and Eastern Europe responses. Uh, yeah, just took a small look while I was watching our screen uh, where the software house comes from and looking at their team. There's a lot of uh, 
European names in there, let's say. So I do think this is mostly a European-based survey. That being mm. said, we're talking about microservices. This is very close, if not entirely owned by open source projects. So being distributed is kind of understood, I think. And I think the yep. bias will be what you would expect, basically, because a lot of these companies in the open source have some link or mothership in the US or at least some money coming from there. So it's that influence coming in from there. The developers, the, the, the technical part is spread around the world. So I don't think it's going to be a negative uh, connotation here and again i've read through the article yeah. there weren't anything there that i thought oh god this is so biased it kind of sounded uh, it kind of read good yeah i like that it read good okay <laughs> let's uh let's let's carry on let's carry on moving um the only one other one i would pick up on in the uh this first section is it talks about the uh, how big the company is that uh, that you're working in for the respondents and this I thought was interesting because it's very roughly split into three quarters. There's a kind of a, a donut graph of of sort of three quarters um, with some other subdivisions beyond beyond it. But you've basically got the the majority of respondents are in companies um, from eleven to fifty people. The next largest category is uh, fifty one to two hundred people. And then the third largest category is employees of 501 or more. And there's, there seems to be, like, uh, you know, the, so the rest of the categories, you know, two to 10 employees, 201 to 500, and it's a one person company. It, it sort of, it feels very interesting that you've got like this, there's almost a, a, a growth pattern then there's there's a hole in the graph and then it kind of explodes at the very end so it, it's almost like i mean maybe maybe to to people who know this kind of um you know what these kind of numbers usually look like maybe this all makes perfect sense but i, I mean i suppose thinking through this so if you're in a 11 to 50 person company your products are probably relatively simple. A huge broad generalization. So, uh, so, so you that. probably, so you probably could do everything in microservices. Is is what I'm getting at. And if you're at fifty to two hundred, then your products are probably more complex. But you're still. You know, you, in the world of Web 2.0, you can't say it anymore because you have can have a, a four-man team that's building a com very complex thing or based on public clouds and microservices and things like that. And you have a huge company that's an agricultural company that has very small IT projects. So, I think, actually, I'm, I'm going through this in my mind and actually, this could just be, this could be one of those things that is just skewed by the nature of the organizations that they reached out to mm -hmm. actually thinking about it yeah and it's probably actually it's not as sig uh, <laughs> statistically significant as i thought it might have been so no, this, yeah. i think this is more the statistics of how large is a typical company what's the distribution of size of company sizing <laughs> mm, i'm not sure that that's true though i just think it's i just think it's who they reached out to and who they got responses from anyway let's uh 
let's continue to uh, to move on down. Uh, we're not going to kind of look at every single piece of this. We're not. Oh. We're not. But what I did think was interesting is the next one is how long have people been actually using these microservices? And you've got, you know, again, like the top three, I guess, yeah, top three, you know, more than a year is nearly a third. More than three years is probably around about a quarter of the audience. Mm -hmm. And then under a quarter of the audience, six months to a year, less than six months, with a very, very small chunk of people more than five years, which to me makes perfect sense. Like the microservices has definitely had a a huge period of acceleration over the last three, you know, three years. And, you know, going back before that, it wasn't unheard of, but it was still fairly, fairly niche in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I'm actually kind of impressed that uh, so many people have been doing this uh, for so long. The thing I'm missing in the graph is, uh, have you been using? There's a difference between using it and just playing around with it or really using it in anger and doing products yeah. and heavy Maybe it, company critical yeah. things. Yeah, That's I think you, you hit on the right word, actually, production. That that would be interesting. How long have you been using microservices in production? That. Yeah, I would like to. I'd like to see that graph, but yeah, still, still interesting. Yeah, but also the kind of product projects. Because if you're doing, you could do your monitoring, for example, with a microservices toolkit, but have your production non-microserviced. You can monitor a, a monolith using microservices. Mm. So it would have been great if they had a kind of a 3D graph for this one, and also have a, an axis on the type of project, comedy critical yeah. monitoring, third party whatever yeah so the next the next set of graphs are all i mean yeah i like these i like uh, these so i think it's kind of funny because it you're talking to people about microservices they're responding about microservices like there's there's a certain amount of bias kind of in my mind kind of baked into this but which is which is also fine but i think you just need to to recognize it but like when people are like setting up a new project you know how are they enjoying maintenance and debugging how you know what do they think the efficiency of their work is how do they think they solve scalability issues performance issues and how do they think teamwork is like all of these are the standard graph that is you know one star is very low two star is slightly higher three star is slightly higher than that and then four and five stars kind of trade places it's not quite that simple for all the graphs but it most of them follow very broadly that pattern, and I think this is just ah, oh, they're all the, they're all the microservices fan club, aren't they? Obviously, <laughs> but I do think that the graphs kind of reflect the human nature because the first one, setting up a new project, that's fairly highly skewed towards the four or five stars because it's mm-hmm. new, it's exciting, it's a bit scary, so it's it's positive. But if you go down to the maintenance and debugging, ooh, that's not, it's still positive because as you say, it's the the fanboys. But there's a lot less optimism there, five being kind of low, four and three trading blows. But it's more of a natural bell curve shape there. Uh, Efficiency of work, same thing, less optimistic, but still, we did this, so we kind of have to say it's efficient or else it's kind of a huge waste of money. And I'm assuming that there is some efficiency of working with some smaller teams because 
don't forget that microservices things also gets uh, ha- go hand in hand with things like Scrum and Agile and that kind of stuff, which are all yep. geared towards better efficiency. And if you tell people enough that if we do this and this and this, we will be more efficient, they will start believing it, whether it's true or not. <laughs> yep. But let's be positive and say that that still works that way. But uh, the one that is the great one is the solving scalability issues, which is exactly what you expect going from yeah. one to five in an exponential curve almost. Because basically that's why you do it, right? Scalability, that's the reason yeah. you do microservices. If this wasn't this shape. You, <laughs> yeah. No, let, let me tell you the graph that I think is missing though. I think they're missing the graph that sh- says, um, let's see, what is the actual, what do they use here? Oh, okay. So rate and a scale one to five, how you enjoy working with microservices when it comes to complexity. I would love to have seen that because <laughs> I think that that would be the one graph that would probably look the other way around. Like five would be maximum for like, maybe, maybe not because this is the, the microservices fan club. But I think that would be I think that would be more even because I think microservices inherently are more complicated. Surely, but it's more complicated. (laughs) No, 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 no. It's more complicated for the entire team. But every team member is only looking at its of his or her little part of the thing. And the whole nature of microservices means you have encapsulated services that you just have an API. uh, You you agreed. I'm Mm going to call you that way. I don't have to care about the rest anymore. And that actually makes a job of a programmer a lot easier because you're in control and you're doing a little thing. So if you ask the team, yes. If you ask the person, I think that actually say it's going to be less complicated. I think <laughs> you're in the microservices fan club as well. I've just noticed oh, yeah. your your microservices oh, yeah. fan club pin kind of hidden behind your jacket. <laughs> no, no, no. I love microservices. Everything should have been microservices since forever. I hate serverless compute. Well, I hate a bit of a heavy word. I like serverless compute a lot less. But microservices, oh yeah, this, this is... This originated in the whole object-oriented programming where you had classes and black box programming, singleton, stuff like that. That was the software part of microservices that now have been mm-hmm. has grown up, mature to also encapsulate the infrastructure part of it. So I love this. I'm, yes. <laughs> Definitely. Fair yes. enough. Fair enough. All right. So moving on to... Um, they, they then go on to talk about deployment and uh, serverless. So you obviously enjoy that. Well, you're going um, too far down, I think, because we're talking about the programming languages. Oh, yeah, sorry. I, I, it's, uh, Which I do think we should just uh, touch upon. Yeah, yeah, we should, we should. If not only um, to, yes, acknowledge the fact that JavaScript, TypeScript is ruling the world these days, but more that things like uh, .NET, Python, PHP are kind of neck and neck. With Java a little bit up there. And Go. And Go, Go is accelerating Which, there as well. I'm kind of surprised that Go is so low because, I mean, Go is coming from Google. Google is very heavy in microservices, so I would expect that their yeah. influence pushing the Go language would be harder. But I've seen Go kind of diminish over the last year, year and a half. It hasn't really oh, come. I, mm, I don't know. I, I definitely haven't seen that. But then yeah. Grafana Labs is a is a go shop for all its backend services. So, you know, that's that's definitely some right. recency and, and awareness bias on my part. But I think, yeah, the, the clearest part is JavaScript TypeScript being, you know, what nearly nearly two thirds more popular than anything else. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Again, I, nothing I bad still... to go. I mean, it's a good language. It's just, I think the problem is that's finding people. It's not, it never achieved that. I mean, TypeScript, JavaScript, you, you, you can't, how do you say that? Throw a ball in a wood without hitting a, a JavaScript programmer? Uh, yeah, you can't, you throw a stick out the window, you'll hit a, Java, um, a JavaScript programmer. Well, Go yeah. never really had that uh, mass appeal, no. I guess. And yeah, at Elastic, we also have Go things for ingest modules and stuff like that. And it's fast, it's good for what it is, but it's mm. in a microservices environment, I, I guess there is a risk of having a, a kind of a wild growth of a bunch of languages that gets harder and harder to maintain in the end. So standardization on something, mm -hmm. you want one language that can do it all. Yeah. And yeah, JavaScript is kind of the best at nothing, good for everything language. Is that fair or something? Uh, I don't know, but I, I just know that I want Java to disappear and die in a fire. That's, <laughs> that's my only wish on this graph. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. And I never imagined that JavaScript would actually be the one that killed Java. I mean, Java and JavaScript mm. have nothing to do with each other except the name, perhaps. But I always expected that .NET would be the Java killer, uh, even before I was oh. working at Microsoft, even. Yeah. I loved, uh, I still love the C Sharp. But JavaScript mm -hmm. is, or even TypeScript is, uh, is winning because JavaScript is so complicated. I don't like JavaScript. Mm. And again, anyway. Ruby, shout out to my, 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 my pals at Ruby. <laughs> <laughs> moving on moving on so the next one is uh deployment and this is this one i do think is is interesting and mm. uh, the conversation here is where do you usually deploy your microservices to and so aws being number one i yeah that makes, makes makes sense they've been like, there the longest more people are on them they should be the biggest even if they have less people actually yeah. using it there pro uh, proportionally yeah um but then two. roughly oh. two-thirds of that being my own server mm -hmm. and then roughly one-third of the aws being roughly equal between azure and gcp i find that very interesting that that sort of, um, I mean, I I think that if I look at this graph, and I, I I would be really really interested to understand what a historical trend of this <laughs> would look like, but my my guess is that Azure has been um, consumed by GCP and not that either of them have necessarily taken a, a chunk out of AWS. Um, what do you think? Um, the clouds are still growing, all three of them. Uh, at the yeah. moment, if memory serves, Azure is kind of half the size of uh, Amazon and Google is about half or two thirds the size of Azure. And what you're seeing here is a bit of that bias already built in. The fact that Amazon is bigger than the other clouds, they'll have a bigger portion uh, of the pie. It would have been nicer if this had been a kind of pro a proportional graph based on the number of people doing projects there. Okay, I don't know. It would be hard to do. The thing that I... It doesn't surprise... Actually, Google is kind of high here because considering Google is smaller, yeah, they're high up. 
But then again, they're the ones that have been pushing the microservices the most without making it a service. They've been the vocal proponents just talking about the benefits of going microservices with the, with the languages and everything. So it's normal that any kind of technology business will gravitate towards Google because that's where it was invented. Let's call it the Kubernetes. <laughs> so that has a gravity part there. The Azure advantage, I think, and I'm going to put a little bit of my Microsoft hat on today, um, Azure's been great in deploying services, SaaS level services across the things, uh, better than Google. Google's been a lot more raw potential. Azure had perhaps less raw potential, but more finished, easy, easier to consume services, which makes the adoption go faster. It's a lot easier to do that. Now these days, they have Kubernetes in all three clouds, so it doesn't really matter anymore. But looking at the history, I think that's why Azure kind of was able to grab a part of the market here. And uh, yeah, Amazon, of course, being the, the biggest cloud out there, been in this in the, in the game for a lot longer. Yeah, historically, it would have been nice to see, to have a more 3D graph again. Yeah. But, uh, I would say, I would expect that Azure is growing the fastest at the moment, with then Google and Amazon still growing, but less fast than the other two, because we're also in this state of mind of the hybrid clouds and multi-clouds. So if I've got stuff in Amazon already, I should put that new stuff somewhere else. Is that good or bad? We've had other episodes on that. Mm. <laughs> I'm not going to go into depth there. So there's some interesting, I just had a quick little poke around on the internet and I found an uh, analysis from one of the analysts that it looks like, so between Q3 2019 and Q3 2020, AWS has proportionally, now obviously all the cloud providers are growing, so you know their revenue and um, and sort of uh, coverage and that sort of thing I'm sure will be expanding, but just in terms of proportion of the market, mm. AWS seems to be roughly holding steady at mm. around about you know, 33, in fact even if anything like decreasing by like a couple of percent, so 33% in Q3 2019, 31% midway, 32% Q3 in 2020. So roughly, you know, within within a couple of yeah. percentage points, roughly even. Azure kind of, grow, well, sort of growing, you know, 17%, 20%, 19%. So like growing, but not, not linearly, like yeah. there's kind of a bit of a, a bump in there. And then GCP, 6%, 6%, 7%. So again, kind of market okay. share-wise staying kind of, they're all kind of growing in line, which I find yeah. really interesting. Because I, you know, I was expecting there to be other, you know, other things kind of trading blows. And I was expecting um, GCP to have consumed maybe some of Azure. But I mean, and this is only one analyst's kind of view of the world, so who knows how accurate it is. None of the three, or only one of the three cloud providers individually report revenue from their... Um, yeah, that's their places. The like Microsoft don't, GCP don't. It's bundled in with other revenue numbers. But the other one that's kind of interesting is Alibaba Cloud, which is actually roughly the same size as GCP, like within a percentage point. Um, and then others is everything else, and it, it, if anything, they're you know they're consuming others, which are the 
oh god knows the the oracle clouds the ibm clouds the the private yeah, clouds like, the yeah yeah Rackspace. well no i think i think this is i think this is public cloud provider yeah probably so i don't think it's so but it it's, it is interesting cuz my i your perceptions get skewed very easily mm-hmm. grafana labs is a, a gcp shop by and large for most of our services we do offer services on all three cloud providers but we but my so my perception of gcp mm-hmm. is that it is more prevalent but again that, that that's that's my own biases yeah. built in like reset that go back and look at the data mm-hmm. like they're not really moving very much they're not well, they're not again, really they're all growing places. but they're yeah. not really stealing from each other no now, I do think it's going to change a bit in the future. And again, my eyes, of course, I worked at Microsoft for four years before I was at Elastic. Yeah. So I've, I've kind of had the different mindset from the start. I had, yeah. We had to kind of look at that and kind of debunk this belief of people. doesn't matter. Uh, but the thing that's changing in the last, and I don't think in the 2019, 2020, you would have seen that. But in the last two years, year and a half, two years, a lot of governments, public sectors are also starting to move to the cloud in anger. And uh, I don't know, I don't have any numerical data or whatever. It's just my own gut feeling that Azure is going to have a little bit of a bump from that. Because for government and public sector, Microsoft has put a lot of effort in having all the certification and, compl- and compliance stuff in place. Google still doesn't have a FedRAMP. They don't have a US federal cloud. Mm-hmm. So they can't, they're definitely not going to get all that stuff. And Amazon has been... Um, I'm not going to say negative publicity, but still, there's well, now a choice. The, the Jedi you know, program, you know, that that's was a bit... one example. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, the, I think still that the reason Microsoft won the Jedi program was particularly on the fact of their compliance and certification things. Because if you look at the whole lobbying thing, the three clouds are just as much lobbying each and every one of them. Yeah. There's no difference there. There's a lot of money changing hands, definitely. But in the end, it's the yeah the bureaucracy that kind of defines where the public's money gets spent. And I yeah. think in the future we'll see a little shift happening there. If it's going to be big or not, I have no idea. Hmm. I don't know. It is it is kind of kind of curious. I think one of the things I wonder about cloud providers and their their evolution is how how the the kind of the changing their sort of changing focus will uh will impact things i mean the aws continues to be the you know you you name it you can run it here we've got you know a billion and one different services and they're all for you um well and, all for themselves <laughs> well yeah but, but they they sell them as being all for you um Microsoft seems to, ha- you know, Microsoft and GCP seem to have a, a, a different focus. Microsoft is more, um, you know, seems to be more targeted. Seems to be yeah. more focused it's on. Obvious. It's normal because Amazon, it's a grocery store. I mean, their cloud thing is something to do. Also, mm. Google is an advert, is a marketing firm, and cloud is something they do. Also, Microsoft is a technology company. That's that's cloud and a bit of software. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the focus is definitely there. And 
yeah, I'm kind of uh, typecasting. I know, but it does make sense. I mean, <laughs> don't forget that sense. AWS, they started because Amazon had this big IT infrastructure that thought, hey, we can make some money by having other people use stuff we don't need at a certain point. And that's where mm. it kind of grew out from. They never became, uh, they never came out and said, we're going to be the next cloud company. It just kind of happened by accident. And most good things in life happen by accident. Champagne, everybody. But basically, that focus is going to be different. And um, yeah, Bin and Asher, at the time that they were actually growing that fast, uh, you're totally right there. The focus is there. Mm. Google, yeah. I, it's it's hard to get a picture of Google. They're doing so many different things, different mm-hmm. cool things. Uh, finding a focus there, I mean, I can tell you a tale of woe that I'm living currently, uploading our little YouTube videos to a YouTube channel here. It's been four weeks that I disabled my API key for reasons. Reasons. <sighs> Whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're <Anyway>. interested, <laughs> we'll do an episode on that one, but no. Moving on. All right. Anyway, yeah. Moving on and back to the uh, back to the the survey, and we probably need to speed up a little bit. I think we can yeah. we can skip over serverless, but it's like fifty fifty. Do you use it or not? Yeah, but that's a lot. I didn't realize that yeah. many people are using serverless, considering it's so less, so little serverless uh, technology available. But then, but then again, like, how are they using it? Like, is one person using it for their pet project? Is it using in production? Like, uh, it, it sort of it it really could do with a bit more, you know, a bit yeah. more focus. It's all it's I also think. not an if or else, right? It's not microservices or serverless. Now you can have a single serverless Lambda function running in a huge microservices thing, and then you'll yeah. be in the yes, we used camp. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Anyway, let's let's skip past this and let's talk about repositories very briefly. This yeah, I didn't get that one to be honest. I don't understand this one. So what I don't understand is the other component of this because surely your code is either stored in a single repository or it's stored in multiple repositories. Like what is the other op- I guess the other option is we don't have a repository. Like we literally like we just dump code in a directory and uh, and you know hope for the best and everyone edits their own and you know sometimes we thirty <laughs> percent of software out there is still written in COBOL. I'm sure that's not on GitHub. I I'm just pulling numbers out of my yeah. Body. I, I was going to say that's not a real stat. <laughs> Don't believe him, listeners. Don't believe him. Anyway, let's, way let's more than move 30%. on from this. Let's move on from from uh, repositories yeah. and let's talk about how services communicate with each other this i don't think this was terribly surprising to me um no makes sense you know http being the the most common event based being the second and then you know grpc and websockets kind of very very distant third and fourth place yeah the rest apis are there to rule they work well they're easy to de- to consume to deploy to create there's a lot of tooling set up now to make this all very easy to work with uh web sockets are dying out thank god uh, yeah rpc rpc yeah, i guess it's still going to be around for a while events is a bit of a more uh, abstract name i'd say mm. i'm not really sure what that should be but that's probably my uh, knowledge deficiency anyway moving on moving on Authorization, I thought, was kind of curious. Yeah, this is bad. 
Yeah, so the majority of people, only the Gateway API authorizes the request. And of course, that means, and, and that's, you know, what, 60%, something along that kind of lines. Yep. And that means that if anyone is able to communicate with some other service through a vulnerability, exploit, cock up, whatever it might be, then, you know, they've they've got everything that they need to, to get whatever they want. And that's just, that is very, very scary. I'm very, I'm significantly concerned about the 264 people that thought that that was a good idea. Yeah, this is the same sorry, thing. Sorry, the, have... the 385 people that thought that that was a good idea. Yeah. That's the same thing when you have a database and you have a God database user that your application uses instead of having push down notification. This is just putting it forward into the microservices environment. On the one hand, I think it's bad. It's not surprising because one of the hardest things to do is single sign-on. And if you want to do microservices, you don't want to have 300 pop-ups for every single service you're losing. You need to have some kind of passing on of the tokens. And that's mm -hmm. one of the things when we talked earlier about microservices being more complicated. This is one of the things where you, which you can't do for every service for itself. It needs to be a more encompassing global approach. And that's hard. That takes time to get all the edge cases out. So yeah. sadly, the code needs to go out, it needs to be published, needs to be go live next week, no, tomorrow. Yeah. Security still it doesn't have the attention it should have, basically. Indeed, indeed. Anyway, moving on, message brokers, unsurprisingly, two-thirds yeah. of people use them. What was kind of interesting, though, was that RabbitMQ yeah. is still so still so popular. Nearly a third of people, roughly, uh -huh. yeah. using RabbitMQ. Only about a quarter of people using Kafka mm -hmm. and about a fifth of people using Redis, with a fifth of people using something else. Right? <laughs> don't know I, I found for some reason and again maybe it's my my own um you know prejudices or and sort of forming my my thoughts and opinions but i i didn't really see much rabbit mq out there in the world when i was uh when i was in a place to be looking for it and saw significantly more kafka but i don't know um, i think it's bias because i'm assuming you were talking about your hadoop days Mm -hmm. And Hadoop was already a multi-project distribution of things where the message queue could rightfully be a project, a cluster of its own. RabbitMQ and Redis, I haven't worked that much with RabbitMQ because I've come from the Hadoop world myself, but Redis definitely, I see them a lot closer to the developer. A developer will typically not be working with Kafka. There'll be something for structure needs to put in place and here they will consume it. So if I, as a programmer, have to do something with events and I need a message broker, I'll be looking in my little corner of the technology world and there I can kind of expect things like Redis and RabbitMQ to be more uh, prevalent, more talked about, more used. And again, closer to the programmers, I get more control. I can kind of decide how I'm going to use this thing. If I want to use that Kafka thing, I have to talk to those DevOps people in uh, infrastructure, which I don't want to do. That. I think it's more of a bias on that part. Is could it good be. or bad? I don't know. Yeah, could be. Could be. The one thing that is missing here, people, is NiFi. It's been a while since we have talked about NiFi, but it's still a fun project. Should be more. <laughs> should, I'm assuming that the other, since it's blue, that's all NiFi. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Anyway, moving on. Let's talk CI. Now, this, this I think was very interesting. So firstly, very uninteresting, the fact that something like 80% of people use CI. Great. Yeah. Moving on. Using microservices, but, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what, what I did think was interesting is GitLab CI being twice as popular as anything else. And then it being roughly evenly split, at least, you know, Jenkins, GitHub Actions, Circle CI, Bitbucket Pipelines, and other, all kind of roughly equal in their in their sort of utilization. But for GitLab CI to be, you know, as I say, double any of those other contenders, I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, to be honest, it's not something I look at a lot, so I can't really say what the pros and cons of these things are. It's I mean, to be expected that GitLab and GitHub should feature high up here. Yeah, I, I think it's that so many people using um, GitHub for their their as their software repository, then you know GitLab being you know so easy to integrate with that, it, like it makes sense. But I'm yeah. just I'm surprised at the at the delta there, and also I'm kind of surprised that drone isn't on there because that certainly seems to be the new hotness in uh, in CI/CD. But yeah, anyway. this is what they're using, right? And CI/CD yeah. pipelines are fragile by nature, so you don't want to have the latest, greatest stuff in there. Yeah. Another thing that annoys me here is, uh, for instance, Azure DevOps pipelines. You can use Jenkins inside Azure DevOps because Azure DevOps is more of a orchestration layer on top of it. So how does this reflect this in this graph? It's a bit of a, I don't really like this one, to be honest. Hmm. Well, I would guess it's other. Well, no, you have Azure Pipelines in pink and you have Jenkins in oh, blue. Oh, yeah, I see and what you mean. those could, I mean, do people then hmm. put up both or, or one of the both? And if you use one of them, which one do you put up? Uh, I don't, that's the problem with uh, uh, CICD pipelines things. It's not one product, it's a knitting together of different things to do your regression testing, your integration, your compiling. I don't know, Jenkins is also more of an orchestration layer. GitLab CI is more tied to the repository, just like the GitHub Actions. There's a bit of, uh, in, inevitably, it's a bit of a gathering of different tools that are hard to compare, I think. But uh, it's good to see which tools are in use. I guess that's uh, the takeaway. Yeah. And then the no kind of no kind of surprise here. The next one, which is what are your favorite debugging solutions? Logs, by far, still still the favored way yeah. of uh, of understanding what's going on in microservices. Yeah, I, but is this really the favorite or the available well, no, solution? That, that, that is. That the question is, what are your favorite debugging solutions? Well, the one I have, the ones I ha I don't have, I can't favor because I don't have them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I think the and again, obviously slightly biased due to my uh, my thoughts around this from my my current employer and, and everything that I'm exposed to, but I'm sort of surprised that metrics are not higher in this. Yeah. Same here. I would expect them in second place. Yeah. Because, but, I mean, uh, tracing, APM, it's, I'm not going to say new, but mass adoption of it is relatively recent, I'd say. Yeah. So, and 
I will agree that logs and tracing could kind of say metrics aren't important anymore. So if I have them, great, I can correlate. But if I have logs and tracing, I'd be happier with logs and tracing than logs and metrics or tracing and metrics. Logging and yeah. tracing is kind of the, the heavyweights and the metrics is a nice confirmation. Yeah, I can see uh, memory was, was, was um, I had a lot of cache misses. Yeah, I see my memory increasing. That's a nice confirmation of what I'm thinking about already. But for real root cause analysis, logging and tracing, I can see being the, the best ones there. But I'm very surprised that tracing apparently is this uh, prevalent already. Because it's an expensive yeah. thing if you want to do this. You have to be very, yep. very careful. You're going to spend a lot of money. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And not always get the right answer, depending on what solution you're doing. Most of them make heavy use of sampling and things like that. Yep. Anyway, moving on, moving on. Yeah, let's not talk about those business models because then it becomes a... Uh... It's a <laughs> Just whole talk to Dave or me in private and we'll talk more about this. <laughs> um, so... So the final one that I think we'll cover here is what do you think about the future of microservices architecture? And it's kind of, it's not evenly split, but it's not too far off of being evenly split between it will be a standard, but only for more complex systems, which is, you know, roughly 50% of the respondents. And it will become the industry standard for back-end development. And you know, the other option, it will end up as a curiosity only used by a group of fanatic developers. It will be completely dethroned by a new architectural solution and other, like unsurprisingly, those are all very small because I don't think that's very likely. At least not, I don't think any of us can see that from where we are today, let's put it that way. But is there a... Is there a war out there between it's a standard but only for more it will be a standard but only for more complex systems versus it will be the industry standard for back-end development? Because those to me are two quite different viewpoints. Um to me that suggests that actually there is a discussion to be had as to whether you're your back-end service requires microservices, and that is how complex is that back-end service? Um, maybe not. For me, the reason to go to microservices for the back-end is scalability. You know, the scalability part of my um, gateways, proxies, web services, whatever, that's in my back-end. That's what, something I control. I can spin up more, grow, shrink, stuff like that. If you're going away from the back end, well, then you end up with the front end. I don't control the front end because that's your web browser. So I can see a difference there, but I'm missing an option here basically, which says that microservices will be it for everything, not just more complex, but everything. That option mm. isn't in there. And mm. I think that that's the one that wins out for me because simple applications don't exist anymore. You need to be secure, you need to be multi-tenant, you need to be multi-processing, threading. There are, okay, yes, I have a little script to do something. That's not an application. You're, you're talking about software development here. And there are no simple applications anymore because they need to interact with everything and anything and still be secure. If you don't go microservices today for a serious application, a, a 
it's something you want to sell, basically, yeah. then you're going to be cutting corners you shouldn't be cutting. Microservices yeah. is not here because it's the it's fun or hype or the newfangled <laughs> idea. No, it's because it's solving some serious problems in the software development. And it's something everybody should do regardless of the complexity of the perceived complexity of your uh, project. My opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I can I can see that. I can see that. So yeah. There we go. That is the state of microservices as uh, rambled on about by us two vaguely competent people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do, I do like the subject, actually, because it is, it's past the hype uh, cycle. Yeah. It's been there for a while, and then it kind of becomes the de facto way of doing things. I think it should be, as I just said. And it's a good moment, I think, to do it, of state of the union of, the, of microservices. It's a good moment in yeah. time. Uh, I don't think it's going to be changed a lot in the next couple of years. It's going to be more of a, a settling, maturing perhaps, and going everywhere from the simple to the complex applications. But uh, the thing to worry about now is uh, what's going to be the thing that dethrones microservices? How far can we go? I don't think service compute will ever be the one and only way to develop software. I don't see that happening mm, at all. Never say never. It, no, did. all that's gonna all that's gonna happen is uh, Skynet will take over. That'll be fine. Uh, yes, but Skynet is per definition a microservices architect. <laughs> that's why they couldn't stop it because it was on the internet. There we go. Uh, anything else from you? Uh, nope. I'm, if you're okay with it, I'm gonna bow down to our robot overlords and say that's all the time we have for today. Let's do it. You can support the podcast if you enjoy our content. Please become a patron. Every contribution helps. We are obviously on YouTube and on our MP3 podcasting software. We're everywhere. You can't escape us. You can also go to the web, www.roaringelf.org. There's links there to the Patreon page, the YouTube page, and all the rest of the Roaring Elephant goodness. You can still send email to podcast at roaringelephant.org, and you can follow me on Twitter using the at roaringelephant tag. Until next time, my name is Fully Assembled, hoping to disassemble soon. Jon? And my name is still in a terrible state, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) And we're looking forward to talking to you again next week. And maybe I'll even start learning how to talk proper English. Mm, I think it's very unlikely. (laughs) See you then. Goodbye.